Hi guys, and welcome back to the second part of Aaron's episode. If you haven't listened to the first part, it's the episode that was released right before this one. Just to catch you guys up, if you don't remember, Aaron, Aaron walked by her mom's side as her mom went through cancer, went through cancer herself, and then walked by her husband's side when her husband got cancer. So she has a lot to share with us. We stopped last episode at the point where Aaron was going through a surgery with kind of a difficult doctor that she didn't necessarily connect with, that the doctor didn't seem to care about her holistically necessarily, but she knew that she needed that doctor for the surgery. So so that's where we're at in her story. And I won't keep you guys too long because I know you're ready to hear the second half, but don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to be notified when new episodes are released and share with your friends if you think they might be interested. And you can find us on social media at the Banana Bag Podcast or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. All right, let's get right into it. Here's the second part of Aaron's story. But she did perform my surgery and it was 10 hours. Oh, wow. But she removed as much as she could, again, without causing any permanent damage to those two areas that were, you know, still problem areas for me around my voice box and my jugular vein. So again, I woke up from surgery. You still have cancer and you're still going to need treatment. We just don't know what that treatment's going to be. And it's going to be a couple months, you know, of recovery before you're able to have that treatment. Mm -hmm. So kind of back to that same space that I'd already, again, I thought I'd already conquered it and to be back again in suffering because of something that wasn't my fault was just really, it's something that not many people can understand unless you've done it for yourself and been there. Mm -hmm. And, um, again, that craving of my doctor's validation that you're doing great. You're doing everything right. You know, I did everything that I could, and this just is a really crappy situation. Mm -hmm. I was receiving those words, but not from the person that I really wanted to hear them from. And I think that just kind of comes back to, we need doctors and we need medical professionals who know what they're doing And we need to trust their expertise, but we also need to know when we need more or when we need to ask more questions. Mm -hmm. And that's something kind of like advocating for myself that I just kind of learned like very quickly that I needed to be willing to do that for myself and, um, you know, get the care that I need and not just be placed into this like well, all my other patients go back to work. So you should be able to go back to work after a week. Mm. Like that wasn't going to, if that's not how I'm recovering, then I need you to listen to me. And if you would like for me to come and show you that I'm not able to do this, then I'm going to do that. Because your voice as a doctor is important and it's respected because of the study that you've put in and the time in the money that you've paid to be in the position that you are. Um, But being that I'm paying you, 
my voice needs to also be respected. Yeah, as, it's your body. Right. It's your life. It's your health. Yeah. It's kind of up to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And accepting that role for myself and not just assuming that the doctors are going to, you know, automatically respect that in me if I don't kind of demand it of them in the same way that they demanded of us, right? They show us that they deserve this respect by doing appropriate things and by cutting precisely and by being successful um, in their treatments. They're demanding our respect, but as patients, we also have a right to be like, I'm going to demand the same respect back. Like, my name is Aaron Nelson Williams, and I'm not just patient number, you know, 523. Like, this is my name, and this is what I need, and this is what I know, and what I've learned from experience. Um, and, you know, kind of fighting for yourself. And that's a really exhausting role to take on when you're also trying to fight cancer. Um, but it is so necessary. And I think really like change the trajectory of my care um, because it would have been really easy for me to just get lost into this mess of like numbers. Oh, can you hear me? Okay. So I know the audio got cut out for a second. Uh, do you remember where we were at? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I think it cut out when you were just talking about how um, as a patient, you just need to advocate for yourself and what you need emotionally as well as, um, yeah, as well as physically. But yeah, um, it's kind of weird to start in the middle of somewhere. We can just start. Um, do you want to start with what happened after that surgery? Yeah. Do you remember which one? I think it was the one in May. Right. After my second surgery, um, and after the recovery, my case was brought before like a panel of doctors, I guess. Um, mm. and wow. yeah, I know like you want to be special your whole life until you're like medically special and yeah. then you really don't want to be special. <laughs> so they were just trying to determine, you know, best course of treatment based on what had happened previously, knowing that the treatment like wasn't done in their facilities was kind of a big factor too. Mm. That's kind of another thing I've experienced going between like what is a major hospital, like kind of nationally recognized University of Michigan to my local hospitals. There's a lot of comparing mm -hmm. and a lot of my U of M doctors are like, we don't trust anything that's not done here. And sure, that's fine. But like, I'm not going to drive to your lab to do blood work. Mm -hmm. Like that can be done by anyone. And that was another area of like having to advocate for what I needed and what I could thought I could handle mm -hmm. physically, mentally, emotionally, um, because their desire would have been literally for me to drive over for every little test. I think something that also makes it difficult is that yeah. there's no uniform charting system no. and there's no easy way for the hospitals to like send a chart to someone so that's also definitely yeah plays into the fact that for a reason why they want you to do everything there probably right and like 
there's a part of me as a patient that wants to accept that that must be a bummer for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm going to be accepting that that's a difficult scenario that you're in because I don't live local to your hospital and I'm choosing to be treated by you, that I need to accept some of that responsibility. But if you're not on the flip side willing to respect that you're asking me to drive two and a half hours to do blood work or to do this or to do that because you don't trust another person's system or Mm -hmm. it's going to be extra difficult for you to get through their medical files, but you're still capable, then I have a hard time like accepting. Respect doesn't go both ways. Respect for Mm -hmm. your time, respect for For my time. And advocating for me and my family's needs and availability. And our time is valuable. Whether you're in cancer treatments or you're getting paid to work like a normal person or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like, sure, that's difficult, but can it be done? Isn't there someone mm-hmm. on your staff who gets paid to access medical records? Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be that annoying patient. And like, if I can't drive out there, I'm not going to. Like, and you're just going to have to figure out a way to, I don't know, fax or email or however you do it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was a challenge that I just wasn't anticipating because I'm not in the medical field and I can't be expected to understand that mm-hmm. operating systems don't work across every hospital platform. Um, but and and it's it's like something that you shouldn't have to suffer for, right? Yeah, that was kind of yeah. And if you want me to suffer through it then how are you going to compensate me with help emotionally, mm-hmm. physically, mentally? You know, mm-hmm. again, this sort of demanding of you're demanding my respect and therefore I'm going to demand yours. Like if you expect me to know these things or to suffer through them, then I'm going to expect you to work alongside the things that I need then mm-hmm. and the extra things that I need because I'm Aaron. And not the person who just left your office, you know, and finding that voice and recognizing that advocating for yourself, though sometimes it feels selfish, isn't. Um, It's actually like not like that shouldn't even be considered a factor, you know, Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of demanding a good level of care for myself is you know, something that should just be expected of patients. But I think we're so easily swayed into this mindset that like, oh, they know what's best. They're mm-hmm. the experts. They're going to do the right thing every time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still humans like who are flawed and make mistakes just because they get paid a lot more than you or understand a lot more than you or whatever else, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, they still make mistakes every single day, mm-hmm. um, little or big, um, hopefully little. But And I think something else to point out there is that it's you who makes your own healthcare process because they have right. so many patients coming in mm-hmm. and out. They have so many, like they're not going to be able to, I mean, obviously they're going to tell all their patients that they want all the blood work done here that they should drive that far but you know yourself and you you are what like makes yourself unique Mm -hmm. so you need you know what you need you need to be able to and it's hard like with everything going on like yeah I I don't mean to say like you need but like 
it's it's kind of up to you to make your healthcare process what you need because exactly. because there's so many people going through it and you just can get lost as a number so easily. Yeah. And that's not really anyone's fault, right? Because like mm-hmm. you said, if you take on the mindset of what the per- healthcare professionals are going through, I might be their 30th patient of the day. Mm-hmm. I can't expect them to remember me and my chart and have it, you know, memorized or whatever. Mm-hmm. So then the expectation should be on me, the patient, to first of all, like know your own body and mm-hmm. what you're capable of giving, which can change every single day or mm-hmm. even hour by hour. What I'm capable of giving is going to vary based on the treatments that I'm receiving or the news that I just heard or whatever else. But just like owning that, like mm-hmm. this is my healthcare. And I'm going to do my best to work, you know, this really great system to my favor because there are really good doctors and really great nurses and a team of medical experts who will help you. But at a certain level, if you don't fight for that help, you're only going to get mediocre care. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's also why it's important to, if you are blessed enough to have someone there to support you. Because putting those expectations on a patient that's already going through what they're going through is a lot. So to be able to have that caretaker there by your side to advocate for you and be that advocate, that's huge. And that's one like really huge thing that I recommend whenever you're in the hospital is to always have someone there that's watching and watching out for your needs. Because like like I said before, it's easy to just become a room number. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and that person that's advocating for you knows your unique needs. And I just think that's really important if you are able to have someone like that. Yeah. And I've been really blessed, like obviously with my husband, but also like just a great team of people around me, family and friends alike who have, you know, were willing to be by my side, you know, when my husband wasn't able to or when we needed that extra voice to say, you know, we do need this extra care. And mm-hmm. we're going to, you know, many voices are obviously greater than one. And sometimes that's what it takes to get, you know, what you need. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely being able to have someone with you, um, even for like the most minimal mm-hmm. appointments, like whatever you consider like not that important. I don't know. Like it's just if you don't want someone with you like recording it or a- always taking notes because mm-hmm. – you never know when those notes are going to turn into something that you need to know, you know, a couple Especially weeks, Especially with months. like that thing we were talking about, about it being hard to transfer charts. Yeah. Like yeah. you you can be that consistent person. So Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's right on. <laughs> so after this panel convened or whatever, they determined that the best course was to try this radioactive iodine again but a much more um, like severe dose of it. So we proceeded down that route and it actually wasn't that long after my second surgery that we were able to get an appointment on the books. I ended up, however, um, getting pregnant, which was a massive surprise. Um, And First, it was like really scary um, because we were um, obviously trying to fight cancer. And then you're like, 
okay, totally switch mindsets. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, is this safe um, for me? Like, do I, you know, how urgent is this fight for me? Um, what will result, you know, from like waiting nine months or longer? Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, kind of immediately reached back out to these doctors and this panel of medical staff who had made this decision. Now there's new information, you know, what would you advise? And um, thankfully, like the doctor that we were meeting with to do this uh, radioactive iodine, I can't remember the name of her specialty. I think it was like something in nuclear medicine. Okay. But she said, we can put a pause on this. Like we'll get you through this pregnancy and then get you, you know, on track for receiving this dose, you know, once you've recovered from pregnancy and your hormone levels are back down and all of this stuff. Um, so that was kind of a massive sigh of relief for us. And then at the point at which maybe a week or two later, we were kind of starting to get excited about the possibility. Um, I ended up miscarrying, mm. which was really difficult, obviously. We just kind of felt like, again, after so many things have gone wrong, like I had definitely been in seasons of depression, but this season was extra and longer and darker. And it was just one more blow. Like I didn't ask to be pregnant. We weren't trying to get Mm -hmm. pregnant. It was one of those things that happened. And so at the point at which I had accepted this as like, a really beautiful gift, it was taken away again. Just just so many doors closing. Yeah, I really felt like, you know, like, is anything ever going to happen that's good for me? Mm-hmm. That feels good because I could recognize that, you know, like this surgeon um, who was not very nice or gentle, that she was good for me. She was what I needed. She was what my body needed to treat this cancer, but it did not feel good at all, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe an even more extreme example would be my mom. Like she wasn't going to survive this terminal illness and it was a sweet blessing for her to pass quietly and quickly um, without months and years of suffering and treatment. Um, But that didn't feel good. So I had Mm -hmm. kind of learned in my life to accept that a lot of really good things don't feel good in the human sense of that word. Um, That's that's an interesting point. And I think that acceptance came with a great amount of like faith and just accepting like harsh realities, I guess. Um, But it didn't make it easy. Like everybody wants to feel good, like including cancer patients, maybe especially cancer patients. You just, you spend a great deal of time and mental energy and physical energy to get healthy. And even though, you know, whatever course of treatment you receive might be the healing, to get to that place of healing was, you know, a massive battle and a fight. And, um, at the point at which we were pregnant, I was just like thanking, you know, the Lord for giving us something finally, I felt like that was um, 
happy. And then it was taken away. And, um, you know, I had to jump right back into this fight for, you know, I was never dying from cancer. Thyroid cancer is rarely terminal, if ever, for anyone, especially someone of my age and um, otherwise health, healthy standing in life. But at this point, into my second year of battling this disease, having just lost a baby, and now they're asking me to get back up and, you know, receive this Start fighting like right away. Yeah. I was just like, I cannot, like, I don't know who you think you are or like what you're looking (laughs) at that makes you think that I'm capable of this. But like, I am not feeling capable at all. And for me and my husband, like being willing to accept that a great piece of fighting any sort of health or disease is the mental and emotional capacity to do that. Mm. And that sometimes you need medication and sometimes you need more than that and you need someone specific to talk to. And maybe you need even more than that and you need friends and family to come over every day and tell you that you're capable of doing this and that they're going to do what it takes to see you to the other side. And in this case, that summer, like that is, I needed all of that and more because I just came to this place where like, I can't, I'm, I'm just kind of done. Like I don't, I'm tired. I'm beyond tired, you know, and I, um, no fault of my own have now been diagnosed twice with cancer, lost my mom, lost a baby. And now I still have to keep going and receive maybe like the worst treatment thus far in this journey. And at the end of it all, um, I did make it through that. And I did um, start that treatment, uh, the radioactive iodine treatment, and kind of got the help I needed on that end oncologically, but also mentally. So yeah, that kind of brings us to like August of 2019. I was, it's so weird to use this term now and not refer to COVID, but I was quarantining (laughs) um, because I had started this radioactive iodine treatment and you can't share a bathroom, you can't share sheets with people or food or whatever. So I just- Talk about the (laughs) mental difficulty. Yeah, (laughs) like you're already in this mental place of like, this is really difficult. And then they're like, now you need to be by yourself for five to seven days. When you're feeling at your physically worse. Yep. And I was on a really like horrible diet to accommodate um, this new treatment. And I was not allowed to take my thyroid meds um, because those would work against the treatment. So Mm. um, no thyroid And as it turns out, having known nothing about thyroids and then learning everything about them, like without a thyroid, your body just kind of shuts down. Mm -hmm. I consider myself to be a pretty like with it, smart person. I'm like kind of well-learned and without thyroid meds, I literally tried to cook something and used cups instead of teaspoons. 
Mm. like a whole cup of salt. And I just didn't even know that I was doing anything wrong. Mm. So I wasn't, you know, at a certain point off the meds, I would like no more cooking for me, like no more phone calls, like no cleaning. I just couldn't even function. So I was literally holed up in a hotel room in Ann Arbor, driving myself to and from these radioactive iodine treatments. Wow. And two days in, everything started, you know, when like doctors are going to tell you something bad or nurses have bad news for you, but they're kind of like, I'm not allowed to tell you. But as a patient, you like, you can read it. You can tell. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just kind of like spit it out. And usually they're not allowed to until, you know, they get the proper approval. Um, So I can see that something is happening. And I call my husband um, and I am like, you need to get to Ann Arbor like now. Something's going on. I don't know what, but something's wrong. And he borrowed my dad's car and got (laughs) all the way there in like well under two hours, just in time for this nuclear medicine doctor to say, this treatment isn't working for you. We literally don't know what else we're going to do. We're discharging you and you need to go home. Oh my gosh. And we have no plan. Oh my gosh. I thought I'd been through the worst of my own like treatment and this was by far worse than anything else. Just hearing who I considered to be the expert who was going to fix me say like, I don't know what else to do. And she had just, you know, been through me or been with me through the miscarriage and kind of shed a couple tears and was a woman herself when I started crying and just like, what do you mean? You don't know. She also just didn't completely break down, but she definitely shed a tear or two and was just with us in that moment. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I can tell you that I will, I will figure this out. I just don't have the answers right now. And mm-hmm. at that point, they were calling my cancer um, differentiated papillary thyroid cancer. And again, you want to be special and different your whole life. And you're told like, you know, do all this and be that and don't, you know, put yourself in a box. And in this scenario, you want to be in that box. You want to yeah. be... <laughs> the most undifferent. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So that was a really hard drive back to Grand Rapids and what seemed like an eternity waiting for these doctors to confer and call me back. I don't even, to me, it felt like two months passed, but I, in all honesty, I know that not even two weeks passed before I heard anything, but Mm. It just was forever. And eventually, though, I did hear back that they were going to do like external beam targeted radiation. So not anything that's injected, like you're kind of that light therapy where they essentially burn Mm -hmm. the cancer cells from like the inside out. And yeah, so that started. That must have been scary to just hear about that. (laughs) Yeah, it was it's just a lot of whiplash. And again, as not a Googler, I was like, 
if you say so, if the panel says so, you know, as long as you're communicating with me and you have a plan and you're sending me to someone decent who's not, you know, new to the field, like Mm -hmm. I'm going to just go with it. So we met a new oncologist and this person is local to where I live because radiation is every day. So it's not something that you can just drive across the state for. Mm. So yeah, I started that on September 3. Um, So again, I know that not even a month passed because it was August when I was slotted to get that initial treatment of radioactive iodine and that obviously didn't work out. So in all reality, like I know looking back, I can recognize that things moved very quickly, but in those moments, it felt like a turtle or a snail or something very, very slow when you'd rather be riding a cheetah and just get to the finish line. Mm -hmm. So I did receive, they determined that 33 doses of external beam radiation was, you know, kind of what was needed and um, they wanted it to be even extra or maybe a little bit more severe because I had been through so much. Um, And it had been, you know, years of fighting a disease that really should have only been a singular surgery. So I really appreciated this new oncologist's approach to my treatment. And he was um, very much understanding and sympathetic while also being very knowledgeable and a desire to treat and to help me heal. He was just um, kind of a breath of fresh air for us and what we needed to kind of get through what we hoped and what turned out to be, you know, kind of the last and final healing treatment for me on this journey. It just sounds like you had, um, just hearing you talk about it, it sounds like since he was able to be there for you in the ways that you needed, you had so much more peace going into I did. And he was very, um, I had learned at this point, you know, a steep learning curve. Like I need to tell him exactly what I need and he needs to listen. And he did just that. There was an aspect of like my mental health care that he really was there for and stepped up for. Um, That's awesome. I'm highly claustrophobic. And oh, this type of that doesn't radiation, help with all these treatments. <laughs> this one in particular requires being strapped down to a table, you know, for the 15 minute sessions. And that was, you know, a huge battle for me. But he helped me with the drugs that I needed and also just the right thought processes and breathing exercises. And in and through it all was just very much validating that what I was feeling and what I was experiencing was real and true for me and could be conquered Mm. no matter how difficult that was. So um, I think this oncologist, if I had to pick a favorite, definitely was that (laughs) for me. And it helps now looking back, knowing that he offered that kind of healing treatment. Also, he has like a special place in my heart because- Yeah. At the end of it all, you know, his was successful. It was just a long journey though, 33 treatments. And besides having had cancer for a couple of years, like a pretty normal, healthy 30 year old. Um, But I, these treatments um, knocked me 
like more than any of the other surgeries. And I ended up with a feeding tube um, because I just couldn't keep any food down. I had lost Mm. over 30 pounds in less than 30 days and just spent all my hours that weren't asleep hugging a toilet bowl. Mm. And again, just the importance of having a doctor, you know, recognizes that that is an issue and will take your call no matter what time it is and get you the treatment that you need, you know, even on top of what he's doing. So he was able- Just like recognizing that quality of life. Yeah. Like, sure, you need this treatment, but you also need to, you know, be able to survive it, not just, you know, be overcome by it. So- Mm-hmm. Yeah, the office was just really helpful for myself and um, for my husband. And actually, there were five other people, including my dad and four of my friends, who ended up driving me every day because my husband obviously couldn't drive me every day. And I wasn't allowed to drive myself um, because of the drugs and just the weakness that I was experiencing due to not eating. Mm-hmm. Again, the importance of, you know, having those people by your side when you're unable to advocate for yourself, those people recognizing like, this is not okay. Like she should not be this sick. What else can you do for her when I wasn't able to say that for myself was a blessing that I know not everyone gets. And I'm just so thankful to have been provided with such a great support system during that time yeah and I'm just thinking again about how just advocating for yourself is so important because they they don't see you at home and they don't realize that this is 24 7 suffering Mm -hmm. for you like they don't they don't see you they see you while you're there getting the treatment and obviously like during the treatment it's going to be difficult but they don't see you also having a difficult time whenever you're not there. So exactly. It's just another important thing to bring up, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We, it was, um, a couple months of that treatment. We finished right before Thanksgiving or right. I think actually I finished right before Halloween. And then the way like radiation works is it's very cumulative. So even though my treatments had finished, the worst weeks were the weeks after my treatment because just like the burning on my skin, like my skin was literally just fluffing off those last couple weeks and the symptoms of like the dry mouth and just where the treatments had been targeted, um, all of that just got a lot worse um, like those first two weeks in November. But right before the new year, they were able to do, I was healthy enough to get a PET scan um, to kind of determine if the treatment had done what we'd hoped. They'd thought, you know, by then they could have a semi-clear picture of my thyroid bed and neck area. And it was even like the cancer was even kind of up by my ears and stuff. So we did receive really good news um, right before the new year that they didn't see any signs of disease. Mm. And that was, you know, kind of an amazing way to start and jump into 2020. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I got, so I kind of slowly entered back into work 
we went on a little trip and then COVID kind of entered the scene and took over again, um, or not again, but took over for real, like for the first time. Mm-hmm. I Once they opened, because for a while they kind of closed PET scans in my area unless they were emergent. Oh, really? So I wasn't able to get that secondary scan, which they had wanted to just kind of make sure that it really was, uh, the cancer really was gone. So in April, finally, they opened up the machine for like kind of non-emergent patients. And I was able again to get a second clean scan. And that's really when we had this massive like sigh of relief, like the cancer's really gone. Like it's been at that point, six months since my last treatment, just about. And to have a really, really clear scan was just something, I don't know, I guess for a while, maybe I thought I would just live with this forever. It had felt like I'd live with it forever. So I just assumed Mm -hmm. that it would feel like this for the rest of my life. But we just had a really sweet, moment. It was a televisit, obviously, first of many. (laughs) Um, But just a sweet moment with my husband. And I was actually with my sister and brother-in-law. And we just listened to the oncologist say, there are no signs of disease. You know, I'm feeling really good about this. And like, I'll see you back in six months for another PET scan. And that's awesome. It was, yeah, it was really lovely. Even in the midst of COVID. So just a moment, again, something. Hearing good news for once. <laughs> hearing even the good news of like, you know, no signs of disease while being in the midst of like a global pandemic was another lesson in this kind of life can be bitter and it can be sweet um, mm. and that it's okay. To even, you know, to not be okay, that life is bitter, and it's okay that part of your life is also good. And being able to um, swallow that and accept that and then enjoy the parts of life that are good, even though, you know, there's a massive global part that is Mm -hmm. kind of in upheaval. But I think that's important to recognize too, because I think a lot of people like Uh, Me as well. I mean, like to define their life like, oh, my life is going well or Mm -hmm. my life is going bad or some things are going how I want them to or they're not. Like often there's no, you don't think that things can be going how you want them to and also like against what you would prefer to at the same time. So, right, yeah, I think that's really just a really self-aware thing to bring up. Um And can kind of put you at peace in a certain way. Definitely. And having walked through so much of my own health struggles, not that, not to say that I was minimizing the effects of COVID on the greater, grander world, or that Mm -hmm. I wasn't scared myself on a certain level. But having had cancer, my perspective was you know, not necessarily like, oh, it can't get worse than cancer or what could be worse than what I've already been through, but just that, you know, life really does go on. Um, Life goes on past death in the case of Mm -hmm. losing my mother, as awful as that was. Life goes on past 
horrific diagnosis. Life goes on as you're fighting, you know, and even after the fight. So my, you know, perspective and as I watched the world face COVID and then, you know, I haven't had COVID, but as I've watched, you know, friends and family kind of struggle through accepting this pandemic for what it is, I definitely had a perspective that just allowed me and my husband and my family, I think, a greater sense of peace than maybe some mm. other people, simply because we've walked through something different and we've allowed that kind of really bad experience to work some good in our life, even though, you know, there was also a lot of bad. And mm -hmm. that has served me tremendously, not just as it relates to the pandemic, but you know, little things to bigger things, um, job things, home things, you know, just this sense of like bad stuff can happen. But a lot of times like the outcome or the growth that can happen through the midst of a really horrific situation can turn out, you know, to be better than what you maybe would have planned for. Mm-hmm. You know, had you and I think one through. key thing you said there was that life can happen beyond the diagnosis because I feel like just when you hear the diagnosis that like that's it for a lot of mm -hmm. people like a lot of times certain words are associated with certain things and yeah that's just I think just something I wanted to really point out that is something that you learn in the moment maybe or yeah. while you're going through it but yeah that's just a really huge thing that you pointed out there for sure and i would hope that some people could maybe learn this from watching others go through it or even maybe from listening or hearing my story you know that there is life beyond and through and in the midst of diagnosis mm -hmm. not to say that it's going to be easy life or the life that you had envisioned but a lot of times those things can only come from experiences that teach you something. Mm -hmm. But you have to be open to that teaching and you have to be open to that growth. And there have certainly been times where I have not been open <laughs> and I just really needed a day or hours or weeks to just be like, this is crap and mm -hmm. I'm just going to sit here and let this be really crappy and maybe later I will try <laughs> to find the joy because there there's a time mm -hmm. for everything um, and there's definitely a time to grieve a diagnosis um, and there'll be many times throughout my life where I will grieve um, my first you know three years of my 30s they were really defined by cancer and I'm okay by saying that they were defined by cancer because the cancer wasn't just bad for me. It was really good. And what turned out to be even more beautiful in my life and in my marriage was when we got the really devastating news that my husband also had cancer. Um, mm -hmm. He was diagnosed the very end of July with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I wouldn't ever wish anyone to have cancer, let alone um, you know, my dearest love now being on the other side of that, looking back and seeing the beauty 
in the relationship that we have because we've both been cancer patients Mm. is a level of understanding, a level of empathy, love, grief that we share because we've both been the caregiver and we've both been the patient. Mm. And our marriage is better because of cancer. So, you know, I'm okay with saying that the first three years of my 30s were defined by cancer because it wasn't all bad and it was really hard, but there was a lot of good that came from me having cancer and a lot of good that came from my husband having cancer, even Mm. though the cancer itself was horrific and the treatments were, you know, terrible. Um, And I don't ever want to do them again. Um, And I don't ever want to watch my husband suffer through them again. Mm -hmm. But now having been through it and on the other side of it, it's just, I don't know. It's just all I can think to say is just, it's really beautiful. And I am deeply thankful um, for all that I've learned because of what I've been through and recognize that I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I hadn't have, if I hadn't been diagnosed, if I hadn't watched my mom suffer and die in six weeks from cancer, and if I hadn't stood by my husband for six months of Hodgkin's lymphoma, like I would be Mm. less than I am now and Mm. not as great for my family and for the world um, and for whatever else, you know, um, comes down my path. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, I feel like that's even a shorter version of (laughs) what you've been through. So thank you for sharing that. Definitely. Um, I think that it was really, I mean, just hearing about the interactions that you had with healthcare providers and how those really impacted how you were feeling in the moment and just Mm. hearing your perspective as a patient. I think it's just really interesting to hear how people experience things differently and how people go through things differently. And I think it was really good for us to hear what you had to say. Yeah. Those like medical history questions or whatever I used to just, Mm -hmm. and I didn't have a lot of medical history, but now like I'm so prone to just like, you're going to know everything now. (laughs) Like, because I do have a medical history and even if that's not pertinent to my physical health in this scenario, um, you should know that like forever, you know, to a certain extent, I will remember those days of being strapped down to a table and receiving radiation. So Mm -hmm. going into an oncology office is always going to remind me of that. And maybe Mm -hmm. the flashbacks won't be as great. Maybe it won't be as scary, um, you know, the further away I get from that. Um, But like that's going to affect my mental state that my husband Mm -hmm. was diagnosed with cancer you know, in just a normal doctor's office um, Mm. 
by a normal physician that we weren't expecting to receive this news, now there's always going to be a level of, you know, trepidation, I guess. Every time you walk into the office. Yeah, just to your PCP's office because that's Mm -hmm. where we got that really bad news. And, you know, if my new doctors or whoever's new to my care isn't made aware of even just my mental state, even if right now I'm perfectly healthy and capable Mm -hmm. and have fought through that hardship, that doesn't mean, um, you know, that I didn't have to get there and that Mm -hmm. I didn't fight a really hard battle to get there. Um, And that's really pertinent information, I think, as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a, like, it's an amazing thing now to see so much more attention to mental health and um, the care that's out there and the ability to receive care and Mm -hmm. even the linking of mental health to physical health. I think it affects everything. And the Mm -hmm. two are so intertwined. We can't just dismiss one from the other. So if I'm going to be triggered by the sight of, you know, the word oncology, then even if that's just in my dentist's office, my dentist should be made aware that Mm -hmm. if you even bring up something that has nothing to do with me, but I'm in that room, like, you know, that might freak me out. Like, yeah, my blood pressure might spike or, you know, a myriad of other things. Um, Mm -hmm. And if they're not aware, that's not 100% on them, you know? Mm -hmm. So asking the right questions and then being honest with your answers. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you get asked the same question 700 times. Right. (laughs) It's, you can never share it too much. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to like mental health and building your stamina there too, because Mm -hmm. the more I share my story, the more I speak to myself out loud, the truth and the reality um, that I've overcome quite a bit in my life. And, um, you know, being able to say that um, is just one more kind of chink in that like, yeah, armor of strength and resilience that I've built up for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story on this platform. I really appreciate it. And you like, I've learned so much from your story and I feel like just I'm every time I feel like now when I see my patients in the emergency room and I ask them their medical history, it's going to feel different than before. So thank thank you you for having me. Mm -hmm. It's a privilege. All right. Can you guys see why I had to make this a two-part series? I'm so thankful that Aaron was willing to share that story with us. I think that it's going to have such a huge impact on so many people's lives. Whether you're a patient or a healthcare professional or just someone who's tuning in to hear Aaron's story, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. She just, she's been through a lot and she's learned a lot and she knows her stuff. And to just have the self-awareness to talk about experiencing joy and pain at the same time. Just knowing that 
it's hard, but you have to keep going. And also just having so many doors shut in your face and having the strength to get up and look for an open door. I hope you enjoyed listening to our episode and I hope it's going to have a positive impact on your life and share it with anyone who you feel like could benefit from hearing Aaron's story because I know I definitely have a lot of people in my life that I feel like would be encouraged by her story. I'm really glad that we hear from the patient side because I think it's just an entire dimension of healthcare that is not out there and people aren't talking about. So so again, I'm really thankful Erin was willing to come and talk about her story. Don't forget to follow us on social media at the Banana Bag Podcast or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. New episodes are released the first and third Tuesday of every month. See you next time.